0: Today we're going to look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. And um, if you're following along, and by the way, you've got a note section there. If you write down, uh, if, if there are passages that I mentioned, uh, you can jot them down. Go back and look at them uh, again. Or maybe a point that I bring out that you want to hold on to, you can jot that down. Um, but, you know, what we see given to us in the Gospel of Luke is also reflected in parallel fashion in what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means comprehensive. It means getting the full picture, if you will. And and so the advantage, and this is the infinite wisdom of God, in giving us three Gospels that kind of parallel each other. And uh, you'll find in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, similar uh, occasions uh, or, or incidents that are referred to in Luke, and also in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you were to go to Matthew chapter 13, you'll find this very uh, uh, story that we're looking at, this episode in the ministry of Jesus, uh, reflected in Matthew's version of, of this uh, um, gospel uh, portion. And then in Mark, if you're looking at chapter 4 of Mark, you'll also find this, this uh, story there. And they're telling the same incident. It's not like they're trying to change up what happened, but they give you different viewpoints that help you to get the full picture. You know, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13 and in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, it's interesting that they describe Jesus as having come down to the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, and great multitudes following Him, pressing in on Him. And according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus gets into a boat. And we've seen this earlier, I think in chapter 5 of Luke, we saw Jesus get into a boat and and shove off from the shore just a little bit and, and, and teach from there so that he could kind of avoid the press of the crowd and two, the acoustics of water. I don't know if you've noticed. If you're you know, yelling at somebody up there in a boat, you can hear them pretty good. I, in fact, I was down at the coast not too long ago, and I was out there in the inlet fishing, and and this uh, this guy was down close to me, and he's fishing away, and had his nets and everything, and and uh, this. A boat came. These two dudes in the boat came along, and they didn't slow down enough, and came too close to this guy for his comfort. And it, and the wake of the boat was upsetting his nets and everything. And and he thought it was too close to his lines, and so he just commenced to cussing these guys, you know. And I'm saying, oh Lord, you know. <laughs> and and of course this this interchange between them, the water really amplified. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> Jesus teaching from both in Matthew 13 and Mark 4, but here Luke doesn't make reference to that. But then it's interesting, Luke being the organizer. Luke having organization in his thought and presentation of his version of the gospel is, is organized in themes. And you recall in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, we just looked at this, this marvelous incident uh, where a woman who had been obviously delivered from from her sins and 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 and, and her uh, uh, the stigma of her past being a prostitute through her uh, faith in Jesus Christ now uh, knew what it was like to be liberated from that horrible uh, uh, sinful lifestyle and and from from that stigma and from that reputation and she came and was so humbled she worshipped the Lord as you recall and she was she was. Weeping just profusely, and, and her tears were falling on the feet of the Lord. And 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 I love this the the, the imagery of her washing the feet of Jesus with her very hair. And what a tender display of, of love and worship and adoration! And even that gave put perfume on, on his feet. So so right on the, the heels of that very moving, touching exchange between Jesus and this this lady. Um, Luke talks about women. In fact, as we begin uh, looking at chapter 8, I want us to examine, first of all, what I call the nature of our Lord's earthly ministry. There are things about His ministry that that set Him apart from all the traveling rabbis of His day. And so, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, it says, now it came to pass afterward. In other words, after the incident where the woman came and washed Jesus' feet. And so, uh, people have on their mind Jesus and women, and Jesus, you know, and His role with women, says, Now it came to pass afterward that He went through every city, village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is covering city to city, town to town. And the twelve were with Him. That's His apostles. And and look at verse 2 in chapter 8. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, we've heard of Mary Magdalene, out of whom had, had set, come seven demons. Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. So here's a woman who served in the royal palace of Herod the uh, Antipas. And, and then Susanna and many others who, who provided for him from their substance. Now, it's interesting because we'll see Mary Magdalene again later, much later. In in, in fact, chapter 24 in Luke's Gospel, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. Not only will we see Mary Magdalene, but we'll also uh, see Joanna as well. But those are the only times these ladies are mentioned in the Scriptures. But the fact is, they were part of the entourage of Jesus. And so women played a significant role in in his ministry. We'll talk about that. So as we think about the nature of the Lord's earthly ministry, one of the things I want to just remind you about, even though everybody in the world has opportunity to hear the name of Jesus, there's no other name that's more popular in all the world in history than the name of Jesus Christ. I remember back in the 60s, John Lennon, was it, with the Beatles, Made that blasphemous statement one sometime. He says, We're so popular, we're more popular than Jesus. And I'm saying, Not. But anyway, uh, Jesus' ministry is, is, is widely broadcast today, but, but I want you to focus with me on the limitations he placed on his ministry. You see, Jesus placed geographical limitations on his ministry because it, even though it tells us that he went from every city and village preaching the gospel, I, I think Jesus saturated. Not only Judea, but Galilee, all of Israel. But you'll notice, he didn't try, he wasn't attempting to have a worldwide ministry on his own. He wasn't trying to go where all the paths of the Roman Empire would have allowed him to go and to preach the kingdom of God and spend time over in Asia and, and maybe try to get to Europe. And No, Jesus was content to limit his ministry to that geographical area there. What a contrast to the mindset of, of some of the popular ministries today that we see that seem to be so bent on success and being measured by the far reaching. Aspects of the ministry. How many numbers of people can they claim follow their ministry? Not only that, they measure the success of the ministry by the the money that they bring in—the millions upon millions of dollars that affords them the privilege of riding around the world in Lear jets and you know, in, in limousines and limousines and posh hotels and things like that. That that was not the mindset of our Savior. He was very content to have a limited ministry. And geographically, but also financially. And, and we'll talk about that. Jesus, unlike so many popular ministries today, Jesus avoided political and, 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 and cultural matters. He wasn't, he wasn't concerned about being politically correct. His message was very simple as we see there. He went from city and villages preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Jesus' message was, was very similar from one place to another place to another place. He taught the kingdom of God. He taught the good news of the Gospel. And that was it. He wasn't concerned about challenging the cultural trends of the day. He wasn't concerned with blending in with the political crowd uh, of His day. And, and so you see that limited, intentionally limited nature of of his ministry, but it's also interesting when we think about the limitations of Jesus's ministry. We look at the makeup of his ministry team. I mean, just consider who was traveling with him. It wasn't the famous rabbis of the day, you know, Hillel or uh, Gamaliel or some of those guys that had big names out in Jew- in Judaism. He didn't. He didn't have in his entourage, you know, uh, some of the priests, the scribes. You know, we know that His twelve, and it talks about those that went with Him, were His twelve, His apostles, the ones that He had appointed. Yeah, these are famous men. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. I mean, you, you, you see the thing. Jesus wasn't interested in this who's who. Jesus was very content to bring to the common people, those who were the down and out, the downcast. He was interested in involving them in His ministry. Because, listen, if you listen to and read and, and, and meditate upon the, the essence of the, the uh, Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is saying. You know, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are persecuted. He says, to them is the kingdom of God. It's not those who are building earthly kingdoms for themselves. And so Jesus focused the bulk of His time here on this earth imparting wisdom to the twelve. We know them as His disciples. You know, talking about how the Lord wasn't so concerned about impressing people with the ones that followed Him. You know, Paul picked up on that thought over in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, um, chapter 1, I believe it is, chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul was saying, but God, in verse 27, Paul said, but God is, has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame wise, uh, uh, the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. Paul saw that. He said, look, Jesus never was about trying to please the world. Jesus never was about trying to impress those in high places that had power. He was a very humble, humble Lord. And He gathered around Him those who came from humble traditions. And and then we go back to the fact that there in verse 2 of chapter 8, and He says, "...and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities..." Now I try to rate where these ladies probably ranked in the social uh, status of that day or social strata of that day. I don't imagine that Mary Magdalene, before Christ came into her life, or even Joanna, or even uh, 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 Susanna, um, I don't suppose any of these ladies got a lot of invitations you know, to come to so, you know the teas and the coffees and the social media you know I mean how many of you want, to, you know, want your living room occupied by a woman that is, that is possessed by seven demons? I know you probably had some people come in your house you felt like had at least seven but the fact is yeah you know, these, the, these are the people that gravitated to Christ, people who had experienced the wonderful deliverance of his divine love. And the message of the Gospel. And, and out of deep gratitude, like the woman, the prostitute, that came to Jesus having been delivered from her sins through her faith in Christ there in chapter 7, these women followed Christ. Not only did they follow Christ, but they believed in His ministry. And they, they supported His ministry. But you got to understand, that was radical in that day. Because most of the rabbis would have nothing to do with women being a part of their entourage. You know, associations with women. You know, women were not considered to be equal with men in that time, and and didn't have the political and the social rights of men. And so, you know, really, their their duties were back at home. Not so with Jesus, and he invited these women. And women played a role. The very first ones, think about it, that that uh, got to see the resurrected Lord was was a woman. And so, Jesus incorporated these into his ministry. So I think it's important for us and I appreciate Luke just in those three verses there just reminding us just reminding us that the Son of God the Savior of the world our Lord and Master didn't have a, a, a big, expensive you know, highly publicized worldwide ministry. He was very content to focus on a limited scale with those who were very humble and, and look how that how effective that ended up being. As we move into the, into the, the, the meat of the chapter at, that we're going to look at verse, beginning in verse 4, uh, I want you to see now how Jesus is, is introducing the use of the parables. And this is a common rhetorical tool that most of the teachers use. A parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which means simply to lay aside of something. Lay something alongside of something. And oftentimes Jesus ingeniously and effectively would take a very earthly, familiar scene or or scenario, and he would lay it alongside of a powerful, heavenly, spiritual message. So the parables were that earthly stories laid alongside of heavenly messages, and so Jesus is is introducing. Parables, and, and actually chapter eight represents in the Gospel of Luke, it represents a turning point because from here on out, Jesus is teaching primarily in parables. You got to understand too, in, in, in comparison to that, or you, you find as Jesus is beginning to become more popular with people in the area, Jesus is also becoming very threatening to the religious leaders of that day. And there's a growing animosity towards Christ by the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes, the priests. They see that he is a threat to established Judaism, a system built on self-righteous works. And, and here he is preaching grace and faith. So in, in, in combating the, the sentiment of his, of his adversaries, Jesus begins to teach in parables. So look there with me in verse 4. And let's just see how Jesus presents this. And when a great multitude had gathered, and others had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And then some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on the ground, on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop of of a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried. In other words, in a very loud and authoritative way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In essence, Jesus is saying, those of you, whose spiritual ears have been opened by God. You need to hear this. And, and, and so, this registers in, as we look there in verse 9 with His disciples. But before we get there, let's just look at the presentation of this parable. Of the, I call it the parable of the so- soils. Some people call it the parable of the sower. Uh, I, I think it really focuses on the variant conditions of the soil rather than the sower himself. Unlike, unlike the, the parable of, uh, of the wheat and tares, in the, the parable of the wheat and tares, the sower is the Lord. And he's sowing his gospel message to the world. And the tares, of course, are put into his crop and false superficial believers. So that so in that parable, yeah, you would focus upon the identity of the sower. It is the Lord. But in this case, it's different. Because the focus in this this parable is not on the sower. You know why? Because the sower is anyone. Anyone, beginning with his 12 apostles. Or any of those ladies that followed him. Any of his true believers. You and me. Anyone who sows the seeds of the gospel. And folks, let me tell you something. God not only redeemed us from our sins, He called us to be a part of His kingdom work. And and He says, you know, come and follow Me. If you're following the master sower of the Gospel, guess what you and I are going to be doing? Or we should be doing? Sowing. I think this parable is very timely and resonates with many of us who have yards. And if your yard is like mine, mine is in desperate need of grass. And so recently, we were, you know, our neighborhood, our homeowners association, contracted with the group that takes care of our yards to come and to plug the yards. That means simply punch deep holes all over the place, you know, and then to come back and sow seeds. That would hopefully, some of them would drop in those holes and then, you know, sprout new grass seeds and that type of thing. But you know how the, the, the soil has been, you know, through the, the month of September. We're running into a drought and, and, and a lot of this North Carolina red clay bakes hard. And, you know, uh, and those seeds are sitting out there. So, you know, I, I, as I was reading this, I was thinking about my yard. I went out and looked and peered in some of those little holes just to see if a little grass was going to poke up there, you know. So anyway, we'll see. we got some good rain, thank the Lord. But I'll get off of my yard and back to the parable here. But the focus is not on the sower and it's not even on the seed. Because the implication given is that the seed is the same. The gospel message is the same, folks. There's no such thing as the Methodist having one gospel message and Baptists having another gospel message and Pentecostals have no the gospel message is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't change, it doesn't matter how educated you are, how sophisticated you are, it doesn't matter what your economic status is, it doesn't matter what job you hold. Listen, all of us are equal. Sowers. All of us sow the same seed, or we should. The Lord gives us gives most attention in this parable to the various soil conditions. And let me just back you up there just to just to very quickly review, because he talked about there and in verse 5 that he sowed and some of the seeds that sowed that were sowed fell uh, on the, by the wayside and was trampled down and the birds. So just imagine these small patches. They didn't have the big expansive fields like we have today where you got big mechanical equipment to tend hundreds and hundreds of acres. Maybe this was a half an acre. But, but it, you know the, the soil would be plowed uh, in, the, in the field for the seeds but then uh, oftentimes you had paths that came, people had to you know, traverse each other's farms so they had paths. That, that went around these uh, uh, fields. Some right down the middle. And, and those paths would be packed down. You know, real, real hard. And so the seed, the sower, he's just sowing indiscriminately. As he walks around through his field, he's just sowing the seeds. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to drop this one on good soil, and I'll drop this one over here as good soil. No, you don't have time for that. So he's sowing, and so some of the seed would fall on those beaten down, packed down paths The soil would almost be as hard as a brick. So what does it do? What do the seeds do? They just lay there. They don't penetrate because they can't. And so along comes the birds... And that's another thing that you do when you got you know expensive grass seed laying out there on your yard. If you see a, a flock of ten thousand blackbirds out there having a, 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 a you know buffet, you know eating up your grass seeds, you know you kind of shoo them away. Birds love seeds, especially when they're easy to get to. So Jesus uses that illustration there. Some fell on the rock, and and in verse eight. And, and when he's talking about that, he's not talking about a field that is strewn with big rocks. He's talking about a field that, that has shallow ground. Maybe coming off of the path, the hardened path, before you got to where the plow dug down. Maybe there's rock bed, a bedrock laying underneath the soil. soil is maybe just a couple inches deep. Just deep enough so that the seed can penetrate and sprout. But then you'll notice there that as soon as it sprang up there in verse, verse 6, it withered away because it lacked moisture. In Matthew's gospel version there in chapter thirteen he, he describes because it didn't have roots. It didn't have it, the roots couldn't go past the stone. And and therefore it didn't have access to the moisture, didn't have access to the nutrition. So there are some that, that fall on this soil that has a rock base underneath it. And then in verse 7, and some seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And and what he's saying here it's not like a farmer is throwing seeds out into a briar patch where the thorns already exist. Thorns sprout, pods, pods travel by air or birds carry them and they drop their seeds into fields. And lo and behold, you may plant seeds of wheat, but there are in that same field those thorn seeds that when it comes to time to grow, what Jesus is describing here are thorns that are growing up at the same time. And so I, I like to think of that as soil that's been contaminated with the seeds of, 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 of the thorns. And, and then when the thorns come up, chokes out the good plants. And then, as we go further, verse 8, And others fell on good, good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop of a hundredfold. That's, that's a pretty good crop. You know, Matthew says, and Mark does too, maybe 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Luke says, shucks with all those details. Just call it 100-fold. There's a lot. There's a big crop. So you're looking at the variance of the, of the soil conditions. Hardened, stony, thorny, and then, of course, Good. So as we, as we see how Jesus is using this parable, and we'll get to the interpretation here as we move further, but, but as you look beyond eight, uh, chapter 8 and, and, and where Jesus says, you know, uh, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's, he's given them a signal. If God is speaking to your heart, if you're open to the truth, God's got something to say to you, listen up. So when we get to verse 9, what does it say? 200? 2,000? People rushed forward and said, you know, Lord, what what does the parable mean? Look at verse 9. Then His disciples asked Him, saying, what does this parable mean? How many disciples did Jesus have? Well, we know He had the 12 apostles. Maybe a smaller inner circle group. But I assure you, it was a very, very minority of the people. Most of the people said, well, He's not going to work any miracles today. Yeah, you're not going to feed us from, you know, bread anymore. Yeah. Uh, free. You know, it's kind of like some people, that, you know, their attitude towards church. You know, oh, they don't have any entertaining games and programs going on. I don't think i go to church. They're not, they're not having a meal at church. At all. I, th- I don't think i will go to church today. You, you get the picture. Yeah, and, and so the multitude probably kind of fizzled away. They're not interested. You know, and, and we'll understand why. But the disciples, the disciples were the ones that began to inquire in verse 9, what what does this parable mean? And and look at verse 10. Because Jesus reveals to them the fact that the parable is a designed, purposefully designed story to teach magnificent kingdom principles to them. He says in verse 10, to you it has been given by whom? By God. To know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, and that would be the multitude, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Let's say for you, Because in the book of Isaiah, that prophet said in chapter 6 verse 9, those very words, God said to Isaiah, Go out and preach. But many of them, their ears won't hear. They're spiritually deaf. And he says, and many won't see. They're spiritually blind. But they'll warn them anyway. And Jesus is saying, listen, fellas, this parable, many people won't even get it. It won't even register. Because you see, they spiritually are blind and deaf these are in these wonderful truths these life liberating divinely eternal kingdom truths are being hidden by god from those that he knows their heart they haven't been chosen by god to hear the truth you understand how bl- absolutely blessed and fortunate you are Not only just to hear the truth of the Word of God, and and there are plenty of people who just hear. I mean, they they hear on televised ministries, you know, uh, think about how many millions of people watch, you know, people like David Jeremiah and Dr. Charles Stanley and on and on and on. And how many people have watched Billy Graham preach or heard, listen, not everybody watching sees, not everybody listening hears. But God has chosen those. That He opens up their spiritual eyes. He opens up their spiritual ears. For you to have the awesome, God-given privilege not only to hear the Gospel, but to understand the Gospel message. To receive the Gospel message. For you to be able to see unfolded before you the wonderful, redemptive plan of God that was set into motion at the very beginning of creation. Oh, how blessed you are! We tend to take for granted the things that probably ought to mean the most to us in this earthly life. How many of us are not guilty from time to time of taking for granted our family? Or taking for granted our friends? Or taking for granted our church family? Or taking for granted the glorious good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul captured that there in 1 Corinthians, in chapter two, verse nineteen, when he says, "The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God; they foolishness to him." I promise you, you go into some of the secular settings of today, and I was talking to Brother Dylan Short and asking him how things are going at school, and he's having to wade through one of those very secular atheistic, I call them biology classes where the professors bent on trying to dispel any notions that are Christian or biblical about the, the, the world. Uh, I mean, we need to pray for these faculty members in some of these public universities. But I'm going to tell you something. If you were to go and to share the truths of God's Word with a man like that, he'd look at you like a mule looking out a new gate. That's country talk, Pastor Mark. Hey, he'd say, are you Stupid? <laughs> God coming down here, died on a cross for sinners. Oh, oh, get out of here! God speaking, and the stars being placed in their places in the constellations. God, God spinning the earth and, and setting this. Oh, <laughs> how foolish that is! And then he'll be honest. And that person may be your neighbor. That person may be your coworker. That person may be in your family. Because you see, they, their eyes are blind. Their ears are plugged. And the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them. Well, let's, let's move on because very quickly, I want to just move on to chapter uh, verse 11. Now the parable is this. Jesus is explaining. Or as Ricky Ricardo would say, explain it to me, Lucy. He's explaining. The seed is the Word of God. In that context, the Gospel. Same gospel. And it's landing on all these different heart conditions. The soil is representative of the condition of people's hearts. And you might ask yourself, honestly, I'm not going to assume that everybody sitting in this sanctuary today has has hearts that are open and receptive to the Word of God. And so Jesus is saying, the seed is the Word of God. Those by the wayside are ones who hear then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Jesus says there are people whose hearts are absolutely hard. Atheists, agnostics, people who just are humanistic and secular. They don't have any purpose in their life related to God. Oh yeah, the gospel sits there. Satan, they may, they may hear a message on television by accident, and soon after that, Satan will say, Oh, no, no, turn over to the to the adult channel. Let's, let's get get rid of that gospel. Turn over to get you know to some sports channel. Get your mind off of that gospel thing. Satan will scoff it up. He'll give them distractions to take that away from them. He makes sure that his, his folks stay his folks. So those are the ones that are by the wayside. But then look at verse 13. But the ones on the rock. Are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no roots, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. There's just enough, you know, in their heart that they're they're somewhat they're somewhat receptive. They're, they're shallow, superficial believers, and I use believers very loosely. Because sometimes you'll have a person that's, you know going through a hard time in their life. They come into a church meeting. They'll hear a message you know, about the gospel. And, and just out of the emotions of the shallowness of their thinking, they'll just say, That oh, sounds exactly like what I need. Hallelujah. <laughs> and tragically, in some churches, that same person can walk down the aisle and say, I just had an experience with Jesus. I want to join this church. And all the members will stand up and say, Hallelujah. Add them to the numbers and give them, a, give them an offering envelope. But then Jesus says it won't be long. They'll go through a hard time of temptation. And just when you just like that grassy land on that, that soil and the and, and and the sun is shining down, and that little plant sinking its, its little roots down through the one inch of soil and, and maybe two inches of soil. But when it gets down to the rock and, and, and the sun is sapping all of the moisture out of it and, and the nutrition out of it, and that little plant's trying to search and search and search for water for nutrition, there's no root. It's shallow. And in the fiery furnace of temptation, and you know good and well, when a person even indicates that they're going to try to make a a decision to follow Christ, you know the devil conjures up temptations Lord. And in the heat of the temptation, they have no substance, they have no nutrition, spiritually speaking, and what happens? They wither away. Oh, maybe one Sunday they were in here, you know, after their experience, and they're shouting and raising their hands, "Hallelujah!" You know, and everybody's patting them on the back and, <laughs> and glory to God. You, you know, God's got a hold of your life. Two weeks later, have you seen so and so? Three months later, I thought so and so used to. A year later, never see him. Shallow, superficial, same gospel seed, but the heart. The heart was not receptive, not truly receptive. Well, what about the ones with the thorn seeds? I call them the contaminated hearts. Because you see, these are the people that you know they they come into the context of hearing the gospel and it sounds good to them. And maybe they they you know initially initially before they really make a life-changing commitment to follow Christ, they 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 align themselves with with the church or with Christians and, and and they like what they see and hear and they begin to grow. But then all of a sudden, there are seeds that are already in their lives. We'll call them sinful habits. Addictions. Or sinful tendencies. That go against, diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Word of God. Sinful relationships. They've been sitting there dormant. In a flirtatious state. You know, doing no harm for a while. But after a while, boom, a relationship comes up. I'm just saying all these little thorns, all these, all these things that, that, that contaminate their heart that eventually begin to spring up. These sinful habits begin to multiply. And the addictions become stronger. And the relationship becomes more you know, entangling. And I'm just saying, it could be materialism. It could be anything. And before you know it, that person's spiritual life is being choked out of them. Suddenly there's no room for Christ in their life. Suddenly there's no room for studying the Word of God because they come under conviction. There's no room in their life to associate with other Christians because they feel convicted when they realize they're harboring sin in their lives. And before you know it, the thorns take over. And you begin to try to look for some semblance of Christian life in that person and all you see, thorns and briars... Jesus is just saying, this is the way it is. Yeah, that's important. Because every one of us need to be honest about the condition of our heart spiritually. Pastors and preachers can sow the gospel seed as long as they want. Evangelists can throw gospel seed all over your life, your heart. But if your heart is stoning, pat down hard, unbelieving, choked out with the things of the world and the flesh, let me tell you something, according to the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the vast majority of the people in the world are dying and going to hell. I'm talking about the vast majority of the people. Oh, they may have heard the gospel. They may have responded to the gospel. They may have given some inkling that they were in on this Jesus thing. Oh, consider how blessed you and I are. As Jesus proceeds in verse 15, but the ones that fell on the good soil, the good ground, are those who haven't heard the word with a noble and good heart. Keep it and bear fruit with patience. He's describing those who faithfully, obediently receive God's Word. Listen, not only receives God's Word, but they cherish God's Word. These are the people that don't have to have their arms twisted to read the Bible. These are the people that not only read the Bible, they choose to memorize portions of the Word of God. They familiarize themselves with the principles and patterns of the Christian life. These are people that you don't have to cajole to, to be in prayer. Prayer is like breathing for them. These are the people that you don't have to put them on a guilt trip to get them to church. These are the people that look forward to going to church. Oh, to God, we had so many people with such fiery intentions of, uh, and motivation to come to church as, as we had to go to the Dixie Classic Fair. Go take money they can't even afford to give and go over there and play those silly games and I, I know I've probably stepped on somebody's toes y'all had ages guests and all that stuff and tried to throw the baseball that yeah but okay but I'm just saying what if can you imagine can you imagine people being that that motivated they'll drive for miles they'll park two miles away and walk that distance. Now they'll, they'll pay you exorbitant amounts just to get in the fair. Uh, listen, oh, church is free, but I promise you, you won't find too many overcrowded churches today that are truly preaching the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But for those who wholeheartedly and obediently receive the truth of God's Word, listen, the absolute evidence and proof that they are receiving the Word and their hearts are good soil is that they bear fruit. They bear fruit. The spiritual fruit. It's in them because they've received Christ. Like we were singing in our song, Christ in me. You don't bear fruit by your efforts or your spiritual rituals or, or, or practice. Listen, spiritual fruit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the, the, the goodness, the, 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 the gentleness and, and, and faithfulness and self-control. All of that is just the Spirit coming out of you bearing the fruit. It's naturally in you. Not only that, we bear fruit of sharing the Gospel. True believers... Look for opportunities to share the Gospel out of love for those who are lost and out of love for the Lord. Does it matter to God if you bear fruit? You better believe it. Jesus told us in John 15.8, He says, Herein is my Father glorified. How many of you are interested in glorifying God? I sure am. I want to do anything I can to glorify my Creator, my Redeemer, my Sustainer, my Lord and my Master. Jesus says, herein is my Father, your Father glorified in that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. How fruitful is your life for the Lord. You know folks, I've heard somebody say, Church is the most glamorous place or most glorious place for a true Christian to be because there you have been fed the Word of God. There you're in the context of other Christians. You're being nurtured. And you're being loved. And you, and you, and you grow through serving. Oh, listen. Church, especially a gospel-preaching church, can be a glorious place for a Christian to be. Let me tell you something else. It can be the most dangerous place for an unsaved person to be. If you're here today and you've not trusted your life to Jesus Christ and chosen to follow Him, let me tell you something, friend. You're in a very dangerous place because you realize how many times this, this, the seeds of the Gospel have been sowed on your heart. And sown on your heart. And one day, just as that faithful Christian will be rewarded for their fruit in, in heaven, in the presence of God, listen, Every time you hear the Gospel and you somehow harden your heart and make excuses and choose not to receive Christ and choose not to follow Christ, listen, you're just, you're just stoking the fires of hell. Do you think God's going to let you off the hook? When some person in a country that has, doesn't have access to the Gospel or the Bible will risk their life to hear the Gospel? How flippant do you think you can be? with the the jewels of the truth of the Word of God and God not hold us accountable. Listen, church can be glorious for the Christian, but it can be dangerous for that person who's just playing games with God. Believers, I want you to know one other thing and I'm closing with this. Because we are witnesses. And we are. No exception. You have a bag of the seed of the Gospel entrusted to you by the Lord. And wherever you go, you ought to be sewing. Could be your neighbor, could be your workers, co-workers, schoolmates, family, friends. And you say, Oh, but I'm just not good enough. I, I don't have the right words. I don't have the technique. I don't I don't seem to uh, you know, be I can't remember all those presentations. Listen, listen, listen to me. God's I gonna judge you by how flowery and Enticing your words are, or how smooth your presentation is, or or how many numbers of converts. Oh, no, no. You stand before the Lord one day, He may just say to you, Show me your sack. What sack, Lord? That sack of the seeds of the gospel. I gave you the day that you came to Christ. I hope I can wave a absolutely empty bag and say, "Here he is, Lord. That thing is plum empty." I trust that that can be the case for me. The Lord's not going to hold you accountable for how many people respond to you, how many souls you quote save. You don't so we don't save anybody. He's going to say, "Show me your sack." What did you do with all the time, with all the opportunities that I generated for you to sprinkle seeds of the Gospel? Don't worry about how they, how they respond. Jesus said, that, you know, they'll have to answer to God. If their hearts are hardened, they laugh at you, let it be. You did, you've done your part. And they got so many worldly things that are choking them out. Don't you worry about it. You did your part. If they're superficially and shallow and they fade away after a month, don't you worry about it. You've done your part. Sow the seeds. Sow the seeds. Keep on sowing the seeds until Jesus calls you home. And pray to God that you can stand before the one who gave his life on the cross to pay the price for your sins and my sins and hold up an empty sack of the gospel and say, I did my part. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I know years ago, a few years ago, we had a, a seminar on evangelism. Very cleverly, we came up with a theme for our evangelism strategy. Go. What was the next one? No. Go. No. Shh. Show. Yeah. Team kid points for everybody. I I would suggest humbly that we might consider changing that little slogan. Go and no, and other words, build relationships. But what do you think? So. I like that. Go, church. No. Church. So. Church. And leave the Fruitfulness to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ourselves are the recipients of the seed of the gospel that some dear friend or family member, co-worker, whomever, sowed on our heart. Maybe it was a preacher. Maybe it was just an ordinary person walking in a different occupation. It doesn't matter. But Lord, the fact is, You worked through somebody to sow that seed on our heart and we thank You and we praise You, O God, that You had already prepared our hearts to be open and receptive, to receive and to grow and to thrive and to bear fruit for You. And may We never take that for granted, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those whose hearts are not... Receptive to the gospel. If you have chosen them to be a part of your family, your eternal kingdom, Lord, then you will do that for their hearts as well. But I pray, Lord, for me and for every one of the members of this church and our guests today who are Christians. I pray that you would put a genuine, heartfelt desire to sow the seed of the gospel and trust the results to you. May we be that church for your glory, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.